Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa. And we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. Curious Reader Podcast. I want to start by saying that if you like this podcast, please review us on Podbean or in your favorite podcasting app. Your likes and reviews help us out greatly, and they help others find our program. We really enjoy doing it, and we want to keep it going. So if you enjoy what we have to say, please let us know and tell your friends. You can reach us on Twitter at the Curious Reader GPL, with the GPL stands for Goffstown Public Library. All right, so I'm going to try something a little different this month. Now that we're a full year into our podcast, I think it's okay to change our format up a little bit. But don't worry, listeners, I will still give a synopsis of the book, but I'm going to add in some hits and misses. So I think I'm going to give a little bit more maybe opinion now of of what I think about the books. Um, And so I'm going to do these hits and misses, and I'll explain exactly what those mean later. And of course, Melissa will still connect to three themes. Um, and so instead of diving right into the book, which I would normally do right now, I thought we could update our local Goffstown teens about upcoming teen programs at the Goffstown Public Library. And then we're going to update our listeners on any news or cool conversation about teen books. So first, okay, teens in the Goffstown community that might be listening, December has some pretty fun stuff coming up. The gingerbread competition is back, and it's taking place at the beginning of December. We also have candy bar bingo. Um, there, there's this drop-in um, teen crafternoon where you can I set up a whole bunch of different crafts, and you can just come in, uh, bring your imagination, bring some friends, and you can even bring a project you're already working on. Uh, then over the vacation week at the end of the month, the library is also hosting an escape room. Teens can always see what is going on by visiting GoffstownLibrary.com and clicking on the calendar. (laughs) And just an update uh, for two of the books that we have discussed on the Curious Reader podcast. So The Inheritance Games, we did um, a discussion about that, and A Song of Wraiths and Ruin. And the sequels for both of those titles have hit the shelves. Yay! (laughs) So The Hawthorne Legacy is the follow-up to um, The Inheritance Games. And actually, I love, like, the purple, the kind of purple cover it has. Um, And it's been out for a couple months. Um, And then A Psalm of Storms and Silence continues the saga between Malik and Karina. And that's currently in the process of hitting the new shelf in um, the teen area at the Gostown Public Library. So I have both of these on my to-be-read pile. Um, I feel like I need some closure uh, to those from when we read them um, a little about a year ago. And so I have some time off of school during December, and I'm hoping to put a dent in my to-be-read pile. I have a huge pile of books. I'm hoping to read um, also All These Bodies by Ken- 
Kendar Blake, and Love is a Revolution by Renee Watson. So do you have any teen titles on your um, list, Melissa? Is there a popular title that you can't keep off the shelf even in the school library? Yeah, I, I always have a pile a mile high, and I never know what I'm going to read next or be in the mood for. <laughs> um, but I am excited about the Hawthorne legacy because yeah. I love that mystery. I also just finished the three-part mm. Good Girl's Guide to Murder series, which I absolutely loved. I think that's one of my favorite young adult series ever. Maybe because it has podcasting in it? No, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I like those connections. <laughs> I'm currently reading Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is an adult book, but it, mm. it does cross over to teens. Um, and at our high school right now, manga is flying off the yeah. shelves. It always flies off the shelves. But we have the new Bungo Stray Dogs titles, which are quite popular. Hmm. Well, thank you for reminding me about finishing the Good Girl's Guide to Murder series. I had started book two, um, Good Girl, Bad Blood, and I need to get back to it. I, other things went on. I had to put it aside. Um, and especially now because I didn't see that the finale to it is out as well. Um, so I may have to forgo some holiday baking and, and just read to get through my pile. Like, well, be that's no... why they have audiobooks, right? That's the true. I'm not good with audiobooks. I try them <laughs> and I think my mind goes someplace else. And then I come back and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to listen to that chapter all over again. We I don't all know what learn we're different on. ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, ah, well, now let's get on to our book. And what a wonderful book it was. So The City Beautiful by Aidan Polidoros. I am not too ashamed to say that the cover is what drew me into this book, but the storyline and the writing made me stay. Yeah, we need to do dip into covers. We talked about yeah. that last month. And yeah, I thought that might be into our next anything. one. Yeah, so next month. Um, yeah. But I am very excited to explore this book this month. Hanukkah begins in less than two weeks on November 28th, which is earlier than usual for Americans. Mm. Jews celebrate holidays based on their own calendar and not the Roman calendar. So it falls on different days each year. Though we didn't plan to read this book that is dripping with Jewish culture and celebration of the holiday, I think it's fitting. Though Hanukkah is a minor holiday for most Jewish people, it has become important to American Jews since it falls around Christmas, and Christmas is such a big deal. Um, if we have time in the end, um, and I think we will, perhaps we can talk a little bit about Hanukkah. If not, I just want to wish my friends, family, and listen listeners Shag Semayak, which means happy holiday. Um, and I usually just say happy Hanukkah or uh, happy holidays, so I'm sure I did not say that word properly. <laughs> Oh, gosh, again, so many great topics and themes to be covered in this book. Uh, I found myself looking up uh, locations like Maxwell Street and the Levy District and the Whitechapel Club. Uh, what were some of your initial ideas to explore, Melissa? Oh, there were so many this time, Stacey. Um, some of these include Jewish culture, immigration, the Chicago World's Fair, Yiddish Die Book and Exorcism, Chicago Corruption, Chicago Industry, Capitalism, Fortune Tellers, Matchmakers, Chicago Strikes, Tzitzis, and Jewish Clothing, Hull House, Burial Practices, Sitting Shiver, and Shemira, which is Guarding the Dead, Tehillim, which is uh, Prayer When Watching Over the Dead, Superstition, Shul, Eastern European Countries, Typesetting, Pogrom, Slaughterhouses, and keeping kosher. So there was quite a bit. Um, and one thing I'm noticing as we read more and more together, Stacey, are the connections between books, um, topics that come up multiple times. So immigration is a really hot topic in the young adult book market. Um, 
uh, it's reflecting a large, larger culture interested in issues of equity right now. And yeah. this month's book and last month's book talked about aid organizations. Um, in the city, beautiful, it was Jewish aid organizations. And we talked about the Asian ones in our last podcast. Yeah. And I'm sad to say that um, actually before this book, I'm not sure I ever remember learning about um, Jewish immigration to America. Uh, I would have loved reading something like this in, in a history class, uh, definitely. So our book today is historical fantasy, but I would say it's pretty heavy on the historical part. Uh, the year is 1893, and the World's Fair is underway in Chicago. Alter Rosen is a Jewish immigrant trying to save up enough money to eventually have his mother and twin sisters join him in America because of the oppression that they face in Romania. Romania is Alter's um, native homeland, and throughout the book, we learn about the extent that the Romanian elite and the government went to in order to exclude Jews from citizenship and meaningful participation in society. So Alter lives in the Maxwell Street area of Chicago. Here he shares a room in a tenement with four other males, other Jewish, Jewish boys trying to make a new start, as well as families, Jewish merchants, make up the community in this area. Our story opens with the realization that a young, another young Jewish male appears to be missing. While some boys have shown up murdered, others seem to have run away. At least that is the story the police are believing. And at first, Alter's not too worried either. Uh, the idea that these boys ran off is not out of the question. They may leave to find better work or to get out of their responsibilities or to escape the hardships of trying to start over in a new place. Or even because... They ran into trouble. And while Alter recognizes the names of some of these missing boys, it does not hit home until one of his roommates. I'm going to say the, the name I was saying was Yaakov. It is yeah. Yaakov. Oh, Yaakov. Okay. So his roommate Yaakov winds up dead, drowned in the lagoon inside the World's Fair's ground. Alter helps out at um, a Jewish burial society. They care for the deceased bodies and prepare them for burial. As Alter is caring for Yaakov's body, something otherworldly happens. Yaakov's spirit fuses with Alter's and basically possesses him. This spirit is called a Dybuk, and I think we're going to talk about this later, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about it here. Um, we'll learn all about that when we discuss some of our themes, I think. Uh, so Alter starts realizing that there may be a connection between Yaakov's death the other boys' disappearances. Oh, and did I forget to mention that there's body parts that have been washing up on the shore too? Soon, Alter starts experiencing visions so real that he can smell, taste, and feel things that have happened. But the visions are fuzzy. As the days go on, they get stronger and stronger. And soon, Alter realizes the longer the Dybuk possesses him, the stronger it gets until it's just going to completely take hold of him. The only way to free himself is to have an exorcism or to find and stop Yaakov's killer. So the remaining plot in the story is hunting down this killer, which leads Alter into the underbelly of the city and some pretty dangerous areas and situations. So that is the gist of the story. But now I'm going to do my hits and misses, giving a little bit of insight um, onto what I really liked about the book. So before you do that, yeah. did, have you ever heard of Yakov Smirnov? Who's oh, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, there we go. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, so, you know, whenever I'm reading, like, 
you know, I'm reading in my head. So I just sometimes make up a name and just go with whatever. And then when I actually come to, I really say the person's name. I'm like, I don't know. I've been probably saying it wrong the whole time. Well, in the words like Hanukkah, I've always seen that writing of Hanukkah, but I've never really said it. I just, isn't that (laughs) so, so crazy? So the hits. Well, First of all, the attention to detail of describing um, the places like Maxwell Street. This was uh, Alter's community. The area was made up of Jewish merchants and markets, synagogues and tenements that housed a variety of Jewish immigrants. There was a commonality of language and faith. This was also a community that lived among hardship, poverty, and lack of sanitation often found during this time period. Uh, actually, the author does a wonderful job all over of giving vivid descriptions, writing, setting each district in Chicago apart. That is something I loved. Uh, so like the Levy District and its brothels, gentlemen's clubs, gambling, instances of uh, pickpocketing and muggings. Then there's the stockyards and their stench and dangerous conditions of the slaughterhouses. And then, of course, the White City itself. The world's fairgrounds with its white buildings and brightly lit electric powered streets. That was one thing um, I noticed, you know, it talked about the electric lights at, um, in the white city and then the gas lights when, you know, he would go into um, a tenement or, you know, uh, something else away from the fairgrounds. That was kind of the interesting thing showing that technology that they brought that in there. Well, and that was that was a big part of the yeah, fair yeah. and the fairs, which we're going to talk about a little yeah. bit later yeah. at the time, those electric lights and Edison. Yeah. Yep. So the areas were brought to life in this book. I actually ended up looking up pictures of the time period after, um, specifically, uh, you know, Maxwell Street and um, the World's Fair itself. And the pictures uh, were very similar to what I had envisioned. And I just to say that's because the writing brought a lot of authenticity to these locations. Yeah. So that was a huge hit. Well, I have to say the cast of characters is so good. We have Alter. Not only is he dealing with um, being possessed, but he lost his father on the voyage over to America. He's dealing with suppressed feelings related to that. He has longings also that he is afraid to share with anyone for fear that, um, you know, they'll think he's disgusting or that they'll, um, you know, he will disgust them. Plus, how can he have these feelings? And if he acts on them, uh, how can he be pure and not sinful in light of his faith? I particularly enjoyed how this was discussed in this book. Um, And then there's Frankie. This is a friend that Alter met when he first arrived, and, and they had a falling out, and you, it's revealed within the book. And um, and while you might question the type of work Frankie participates in, you also say, yes, for the love, everyone. Everyone needs a friend like Frankie. I thought he was a great ally, mm-hmm. and um, I, I really liked him. Then there's Mrs. Brenner, the mother figure, I think, of Maxwell Street. She's also a matchmaker card reading lady. Um, so we talked a little bit about fortune telling. And so Mrs. Brenner has a little bit of that in there. Um, and she was always concerned whether or not Alter is eating enough. So I really loved her character. And then Razel. She's our intrepid journalist and dare I say maybe an anarchist. Um, she's a force of determination. So those were some main characters there. And I loved how they all worked together. One of the things this uh, this book reminded me of the Six of Crows series okay, yeah. and those rich characters. Yeah. I don't know if you've, you've read that, but um, Frankie would parallel and I can't remember the character's name, but parallel with the another gritty character in, mm. in that series. Okay. Um, um, but if you like books about characters with a little bit of fantasy, this this really hit it very yeah. well, too. I think so. So um, I have two more hits. 
I loved how Yaakov's memories started manifesting in Alter's reality to show how um, the, the Dybuk was getting stronger, and it really adds to the tension um, as to why we need to find the killer. So I thought that was well done. And then there is a scene um, in the slaughterhouse basement that I think was a wonderful subtle knob to subtle nod to um, a connection to H.H. H. Holmes and his murder hotel basement. Um, so for those who who know about um, the murder hotel and the serial killing that happened during the World's Fair in Chicago, I thought this was like a nice little subtle nod there. I'm not sure what my expectation of this book was when I picked it up. I didn't know if it was going to be more. I don't know. I don't know if I was thinking it was just going to be like an H.H. H. Holmes, but he was just going to twist it a little bit. And um, so I was impressed that it was more of the Jewish immigrant experience and the Jewish culture and the heritage being to me the center and not just a spin on um, H.H. H. Holmes and serial killing during the World's Fair. So I liked that. But I like that little connection. So and the misses. So there's really actually only one miss for me in this book. Um, so misses to me are like the aspects that maybe were not my favorite of the book or me just didn't work for me, but they might be different for you. So like I said, I only have one. The pacing is a little off, <laughs> just a little off to me. I felt like the first 150 pages of the book, um, were slow. They were interesting and I wanted to read, uh, but I didn't mind like if I had to stop and go to something else and come back. Um, you know, if I could sometimes say, oh, I'll read two chapters and I'll come back to it later. Uh, and I think it was just because the pacing was a little a little slow there. Uh, but then there was, you know, a, a little bit after 150, all of a sudden there's this adrenaline-like pacing. Um, and it, there's a little bit of a red herring there. You think that this is going to tie up the mystery and then you're like, no, wait, this, we can't tie up the mystery right now. This can't be the tie up the mystery. Um so that part, I just couldn't put the book down. Yeah. Like I was, you know, that was where, okay, one more chapter. Oh, one more chapter. One more. Um, and then when the real tie-up comes, I think the pacing slows again. And so it just let me down a bit. But maybe there was a reason for it. I so don't know. For, for me, the first 150 pages, I'll agree. I was like, this is slow. And I would have to get up. And yeah. But I, in the end, on my Goodreads account, I gave it five stars, which I rarely do for a book um, oh. because of the second half of the book. Yeah. So um, I I think the second half of the book more than made up for it. And mm -hmm. that dip into Jewish culture was so accurate and yeah. intriguing that that to me that overshadowed yeah. the weakness. But I agree that you have to get through that first part. You, just, you do. Yeah. And so I think that's why I'm also saying this to the to you listeners, because just you, as you get through that and, and you learn a lot from that first part. So I'm not going to say that there's not, but you just you got to get through it. And it's OK to say, hey, I'm just doing two chapters today to tomorrow because you will get to a point where you're like, I'm staying up all night. Yeah, so can't put it down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So. With my thoughts voiced, I think now is a great time to narrow down and start um, dissecting our three themes. And so I'm going to hand this over to Melissa, but I'm also going to kind of put this out here. Um, these three themes, not that our other three themes have not been great, but um, there, there's a lot to these ones. And um, as Melissa's going to tell you, there's a lot of history and heritage there. So if I am super quiet and I really just <laughs> let Melissa go, it's because I don't want to interfere with um, some of those thoughts. Oh, I want you to hear them all. <laughs> okay. There is so much here. Um, there is so much here to explore beyond the book. Um, so I'm tying together some of the topics that I 
mentioned before with larger themes to fit in as much as possible. I'm not going to go deeply into smaller themes, but I am going to provide a little more background than the author did. The author's note at the end and the glossary do a great job of explaining some background. Um, Stacy, what was the, the, uh, the book where this kind of information was put at the end and we mm-hmm. said that we wanted it in the beginning? I don't mind the information at the end here, perhaps because it is my culture, the mm-hmm. Jewish culture, and I understood a lot of things that others might not understand. But what are what were your thoughts on this, Stacy? So I'm pretty sure it was um, uh, Marie Lou's The Kingdom of Back because the author noted um, it was in the back in the back of the book. It revealed that the Kingdom of Back was really a fantasy place that the Mozart children had created. It was a, through their stories that they told each other as they were traveling from place to place. So I think I'm more in tune now to immediately check the back of a book Smart. for those author <laughs> notes. Um, and and in this book, you mentioned that there was a huge glossary of Yiddish words. And and actually, I think it was um, a song of rates and ruins. There was a lot of. Um, West African folklore words in there too that I had to keep going and looking up. I tried context clues, but it was a little hard. I had to keep looking them up. So I was pretty grateful for the glossary in this book. Uh, But the author also did a great job of giving context clues within the story. But I liked having a definitive definition at my fingertips. So I kept a bookmark at the back of the book so I could easily turn to the glossary. And also I think this book and the author's note is important because it brings a story featuring Jewish people that's not just Holocaust-based and gives context and history to a people group that have had violence and hatred perpetrated against them throughout history. We have so many books on the Holocaust in our collection. It's time to move beyond. Mm -hmm. And actually, I was just reviewing School Library Journal, which is a journal we use to order books. And there were a couple of new Jewish books that were not Holocaust-based in there. So I think this is going to be a trend we're seeing now. Um, So let's get started with theme one, which is Judaism. Mm Let me start with an even broader idea before I dive into that. And keep in mind that one of the main values of books is to support empathy. Librarians really promote that. Books help us learn about other cultures, but sometimes they also help us learn about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is the first book, as I said, that we have read about my own culture, but there's a lot I don't know about my own ancestry. Reading this book has helped me better understand myself. Some of these themes are very personal to me, and because of this, I will offer some insight from a personal perspective that I hope will be enlightening for you and and not just like... (laughs) (laughs) Jewish culture drips from this book, and it would take a podcast much longer Mm. than ours to dive into it all. Obviously, we could do a whole podcast just on Jewish culture, Um, but I'll hit on some of the larger themes here. So I also want to add, if we haven't hit on a book yet that reflects you, please let us know, because as librarians, we celebrate diversity and inclusiveness, and and we want to include the cultures of our listeners. Yeah, you definitely let us know. And if you have a specific title in mind, even better. While at times um, very difficult um, and emotionally to read, I've learned so much about the Jewish immigrant experience that I've never read before in this book, and and diverse books offer the opportunity for to pe- for people to see themselves on the pages, but it also gives the others the opportunity to view and learn something new. So, all right, Melissa, I can't wait to hear what you want to share with us and what you learned. Okay, so first I'm going to talk about something that has fascinated me since my mom played records in this language when I was a kid. So Yiddish plays a major role in this book. And the inclusion of a glossary of terms at the end was such a great touch, as we talked about. Uh, My mother grew up speaking Yiddish and English, while her parents each spoke about seven different languages. Wow. (laughs) A lot of Yiddish terms are just built into Jewish culture. Um, The basic vocabulary of... um, 
of Yiddish is medieval German, but it also incorporates Aramaic, Hebrew, and other Eastern European languages. It could be one reason why my grandparents could grasp other languages so easily, because Mm. Yiddish is made up of so many. Scholars believe the language derives from the 10th century when Jews migrated, in part because of the Crusades. They were running away. Mm-hmm. Um, let's contrast that spread of language and culture with the Holocaust in the 20th century, where the Holocaust caused a decrease in language speakers of Yiddish directly through the loss of life and indirectly through the stigma of retaining old world ways when Jews were trying to assimilate. So mm-hmm. they didn't want to be caught necessarily talking Yiddish. They right. wanted to, to fit in. And that's um, actually noted a lot in this book. Right? Like, not in Yiddish, not in Yiddish, you know. Um, They say that quite a bit. Right. So So they they want to blend. Mm -hmm. Language plays a large role in self-identity. I do feel like I am missing out on a lot by not knowing the language of my forefathers. But certain phrases and and terms are part of who I am. You may even recognize some of my favorites as they have become part of a larger American language culture. And they're also fun to say. So I'm going to say some of them. (laughs) Though I can't roll my letters like I'm supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so here are some fun ones. Chutzpah. Oh, I just did. You did, yeah. Mensch, klutz, meshugana, meshegas, meshegas, sorry. Nash, oy vey, which is my favorite. Or just oy. Putz, schlep, tchotchkes, tukis, schmooze, schwitz, stick, spiel, and verklempt. Jenny, ring a bell, Stacey. Yes, Alyssa. <laughs> I've said many of those words. Chutzpah, nosh. I say oy vey all the time. And actually, oy, I say a lot too. Um, I'm always schlepping something up the stairs at my house. And I did away with our uh, tchotchkes a while ago because I can't see in all the dusting or storing little things like that. But um, So my grandfather has since passed away. And he talked about how his mother spoke Yiddish at home. And the one thing, um, as I was reading this book, that I wish I knew more about my great grandmother and that heritage um it wasn't talked a lot about in my family and i was probably i like i look back and i i'm i was one of those teens that was a little bit more self-absorbed and probably did not spend enough time asking my grandfather um so that's something i regret and that's yeah. one of the things i tell teens is is talk yeah. about your heritage because teens are really interested but they don't think to talk about it um yes. and i lost my grandparents when i was young so um, I really wish I had the opportunity to talk to them. We lose so much culture over time. We do. So anyway, so when we think about the spread of language, that's a good thing. But I also talked about the loss of language. And this leads to a major theme in this book, which I'm just going to touch on briefly, is the treatment of the Jewish people throughout history. I don't want to belabor this point um, because it's it appears in many different mm-hmm. places. But people often do not think of Jewish people today as targets of hatred. But I want to make it clear that this has been and remains a problem. Anti-Semitism did not end with the Holocaust. And I found a good quote from the Anti-Defamation League about this that explains it. So what, what historically, what began as a conflict over religious beliefs evolved into a systematic policy of political, economic, and social isolation, exclusion, degradation, and attempted annihilation. It did not begin in the Nazi era, nor did it end with the close of World War II. Its continuance over the millennia speaks to the power of scapegoating a group that is defined as Mm. other. Um, And we've talked about this many times on our podcast. So just as we have seen with these other diverse groups, there is bigoted targeting of this minority, too. 
So let's shift gears so we can talk about other aspects of Judaism. And there's a lot in here that's more fun to discuss. <laughs> so um, ideas about butchers in this book were very interesting to me because I'm told my great grandfather was a kosher butcher in Poland. Hmm. The book made me wonder more about his butchering practices. And I'm just going to throw this in because this came up this morning. I have a student who is studying the meatpacking industry and writing a paper okay. about it. And after reading this book, I said to her, you've yeah. got to look into Chicago and the meatpacking industry. And she's kind of excited to do that. So um, butchering and meatpacking is a, is an interesting subject, <laughs> believe it or not. The book made me wonder about my grandfather's practices. I know that when my mom was young, growing up in Montreal, or when she came to New York City when she was a little older, I'm a little fuzzy on the time, and I should have asked her about this. Her mother would take her to pick out a live chicken that grandma would kill mm -hmm. fresh for dinner. Yeah. This is so different from the butchering practices that we saw in the City Beautiful. Keeping kosher is a very important part of Orthodox Jewish life. It involves using separate dishes, uh, sets of dishes for religious days of the week and for holidays. It involves a restricted diet. It involves meat being butchered in a, in a very specific way with a rabbi present. You may have heard that Jewish people don't eat pork or shellfish. Yeah. I grew up with both of these, but I didn't drink milk at meals where meat was served, which was a leftover belief from my mom's childhood. Uh -huh. So there's a lot of things related to yeah. food and Jewish culture there, um, and uh, which ties in with the, the meat. Um, I thought it was very clever that he included meat packing in this um, as a way to kind of to tie up the food um, and Jewish culture yeah. there, Jewish yep. foods. So. Um, I want to move on to talk about how there are different kinds of Judaism, just as there are different types of Christianity. My mother grew up Orthodox, which involves keeping kosher in some of the practices we see in this book. The ideas of women praying upstairs in synagogue, separate from the men, or the need for chaperones is another part yep. of Orthodoxy. <laughs> Rachel in the book goes against all ideas of old-fashioned Jewish femininity. <laughs> um, I grew up Reformed, which is much less grounded in everyday prayer and practice. In between what I grew up with and orthodoxy is conservative Judaism. Each of these three forms of Judaism have different sects within the communities. For example, within the orthodox community, there are the Hasidim, which are very religious Jews who dress and believe as our main character does mm -hmm. in the book. There are also uh, yeshivish who emphasize the importance of education. There are even humanistic Jews who see their Jewishness as culture rather than as religious, just because yeah. um, the culture goes way back. There are many, many variations, and I've provided links on Pinterest if you're interested in learning more. But I think a lot of people just don't realize that not every Jewish person believes the same right. thing. So as with all cultures, Judaism has its own magical folklore. And I didn't know so much about this. This is one of the things I learned. Magic, for the most part, is very much not a part of Jewish religion. We don't believe in idolatry, mm -hmm. um, and magic is not encouraged. Um, but that does not mean that all practitioners shy away from superstitious beliefs. Um, I had never heard of Dybuk before reading this book. That was fascinating to me. Dybuk are dead people who temporarily take over human bodies to accomplish things, unfinished business, namely revenge. Yep. My sister knew about this. I mentioned it to her, and I was trying to remember the word, and she just spit it out. I was like, oh, oh so <laughs> okay. she knew. She knew. Um, there's actually, okay, as I was doing my research, so I'm very excited about this. There's actually a new Hindi film out about Dybuk, where a woman brings an antique Jewish box into her home and horrible mm. things happen. I think it was on Netflix. I think so, yeah. yeah I can't wait to see 
see it. So that might be part of my watching this week. (laughs) (laughs) Jewish folklore also has sea creatures, witches, clay brought to life, demons, werewolves, shapeshifters, and more. I had no idea. (laughs) This is not part of religious practice. These are cultural beliefs, just like Asian cultures Mm -hmm. we talked about last month. Some Jews do believe in other magical practices, such as related ideas of fortune telling and matchmaking, as we see in The City Beautiful. I can see why you said you're going to just sit back and listen here. (laughs) Well, it's so fascinating that I was just like, there's not really a time to, because I I don't want anyone to miss like the... Yeah, there's a lot of Yeah, the little things that go together. I tried to pack in as much as possible. So um, we'll just keep going. Jewish culture, as all cultures, is dominated by tradition. And if if you ever see Fiddler Fiddler on the Roof, tradition, (laughs) it's true. So I love how young adult novels are taking deep dive into the cultures of their writers now in a way that wasn't done in the past. Mm. And I was so excited to see my culture reflected, as I said. Writers are now mixing cultures into their fantasies or mysteries. We can learn about culture as we read the genres we love and not just through nonfiction and memoirs and realistic fiction as we did in the past. And that's why I think earlier on I said that this would be a book that I would have loved in a history class, you know, um, to read. So, yeah. Um, just spice it up a little yeah. bit. So now we're moving on. So that was a lot. There's a lot more to talk about, but that's just to whet your appetite a little bit and get <laughs> you a little familiar. So theme two is Chicago, um, which is synony- synonymous with manufacturing and the development of manufacturing this company in this country and labor. So Chicago, just for a little background, is the third largest city in the country and one of the largest in the world. The city, like much of the country, grew remarkably from 1850 to 1930. The Great Lakes and Chicago's location in the center of the country have made its location perfect for fueling our capitalist economy and have made it a hub for manufacturing. Furthermore, Chicago is in the heart of a rich agricultural region that feeds the manufacturing machine. All of these factors together made Chicago the world's railroad center in the late 19th century. In 1830, the Chicago region had about 200 residents. By 1850, there were about 30,000. By 1870, 300,000. And by 1890, 1.1 million. So we went from 200 to 1.1 million in what, um, 40 years? 40 years. 50. 50, Oh, yeah, 30 to 50. Yeah, so about 60 years or so. Wow. Chicago was a center of commodities, um, the commodity trade centers there. Um, so commodities such as wheat and meat. It also manufactured furniture, apparel, tobacco, machine shop products, and more. The City Beautiful gives us a good taste of what the city was like in its mm-hmm. manufacturing heyday, that vivid imagery that you described. Yes. Um, but factory jobs were pretty awful. Our main character, Alter, even alludes to how he wants to stay away from sweatshop work. Yes. He was devastated when he lost a printing job, um, in part because of his fear of being relegated to sweatshop work instead. So I was looking up what life was like for these workers, and one article from the Smithsonian states, Fierce competition among contractors for work and immigrants' desperate need for employment kept wages down and hours up. As miserable as this work was, however, it provided many new arrivals a transition into American society and a more prosperous future for themselves and their families. 
Some immigrants began working in small shops, eventually owning large clothing firms. Others succumbed to disease, malnutrition, and exhaustion, and never found the path from tenement sweatshop to a better life. So there is a rich history of labor and labor organizing related to these events um, in the 19th century that is a very important part of American history. It's a time when we tried to balance the rights of workers with the need for manufacturing and oftentimes the greed of the industrialists of the time. We only have time to touch on it briefly again, but I hope you'll dip into some of the links we've provided on our Pinterest page. In Chicago, strikes were common. Frustration with working conditions boiled. Unions organized. In 1886, strikers across the city walked off the job to reduce their long 10 to 12 hour days compared to the eight we commonly have today. And we have these because of these workers. Otherwise, we'd be working those long hours, too. Some of us do again, I guess. Police clashed with picketers and someone threw an explosive device into the mix. This event was called the Haymarket Affair and was a prelude to other strike organizing. In 1894, there was the Pullman strike. Then there was a teacher strike in 1897 and a minor strike at the same time. Just like with the topic of Judaism, as I said, there's too much here. It's (laughs) such a rich history, um, which is uh, it goes to say a lot about this book, how much Mm -hmm. he packed into it. Um, Another topic he briefly discussed was Hull House, which rang a bell for me because I studied it in college. It played an important role in workers' lives. Founder Jane Addams was even awarded a Nobel Peace Prize for what she did to improve the lives of working people and to promote peace. Settlement houses supported workers by, by providing them with a community and systems that helped improve their lives. Adams worked tirelessly to help laborers. She was a prolific writer on the topic. She was a leader also for the women's suffrage movement movement and American civil liberties. And according to the Hull House Museum site, Jane Adams and the Hull House residents provided kindergarten and daycare. Wow. How how forward thinking is that? Um, Provided this for the children of working mothers. They had an employment bureau, an art gallery, libraries, English and citizenship classes, theater, music, and art classes. As the complex expanded, so it was a little house that expanded and included 13 buildings, Hull House supported more clubs and activities such as the Labor Museum, the Jane Club for Single Working Girls, meeting places for trade union groups, and a wide array of cultural events. Mm, so if you awesome. think of Alter's experience and how he has trouble finding help, there were people out there at the time who were trying to help, but it, like, these problems were so yeah. huge. Um, as they are today, some of them. Finally, then there were the industrial fairs highlighting all of this city life and, and manufacturing. The 1893 World's Fair was called the Columbian Exposition, which was basically a central character in this yep. book. We've talked about places as characters. Well, this is an event as a yes. character. Um, it set out to celebrate the innovation of industrialism while trying to cover up the underlying problems with the system. Referred to as White City, the Chicago World's Fair featured great white and glass buildings that the creators of the fair wanted to represent the wonders of the future. Okay, it reminds me of Disney World and the, what's that? Oh, like t- the Tomorrowland? The t- Tomorrowland, Tomorrowland, same, yeah. same kind of yeah. idea. <laughs> the Ferris wheel was invented specifically to draw crowds to the amusement park at oh. the fair and to encourage attendance that would witness the brilliant industrialism of this growing city on the lake. 
World's fairs proliferated throughout the industrialized world in the 19th century as cities such as New York and Paris vied for attention. Um, Chicago's was one of the big ones. World's fairs lost popularity in the 1930s as World War II emerged and society became more concerned with a new age of atomic energy and Cold War. So if you are interested in this time period, um, and how can you not be after that? Exactly. <laughs> if you're interested in Chicago and the World's Fair, if you're looking for another thriller, I highly recommend one of my favorite, favorite books. It's called Devil in the White City by Eric Larson and is a nonfiction account of a serial killer who, who mm-hmm. Stacy mentioned uh, earlier, a serial killer who was operating at the ex, ex, um, at the exposition. The book explores the development of the Ferris wheel. So every other, other chapter, it's the Ferris wheel. And then they talk about the serial killer and housing developing. Um, in fact, author Aidan Polidora cites the horrible murders of the real serial killer H.H. H. Holmes in the White City as his inspiration when you read that final uh, note of his yes. at the end. So it was his inspiration for this book. Whew. All right. So much. Finally. All right. Theme three, journalism. Mm -hmm. So in addition to being a time of booming industry, the late 19th century also brought us the boom of the reporting industry. As reflected in this book, news was deeply entrenched in and sometimes involved with strikers in the 19th century. Poor working conditions were highlighted by the reporters. Rachel's character in the story represents a lot of real journalists who gained prominence for their reporting of labor conditions in Chicago. So um, he wasn't a journalist, but novelist Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle in the early 20th century to highlight the working class troubles in Chicago. He highlighted the harsh living conditions and the harsh working conditions for Chicago's immigrants and its poorest citizens. And he spent a lot of time in those areas to do his research. I think um, Aiden, I think the author for this book, Aiden Polidor, I think he also mentions that when he was um, doing research and um, some of the information for this, I thought he had mentioned um, Uh, the jungle as, um, you know, part of a something that he had looked at. Yeah. And that's if you haven't read it, it's hard to get through. Mm. I've probably read it in parts. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but that is something every American should probably read. Um, Jacob Reese, Nellie Bly and Ida Tarbell were all big name reporters across the country who worked to expose the ills of manufacturing um, at that time. So during my research, um, because we can go on and on and on about journalism, but during my research, the most interesting thing I came across, I think, was something by the Smithsonian that talks about girl reporters, Hmm. in quotes, girl reporters, who were uncovering corruption in industry. I had no idea they were doing this. So one very interesting passage talked about one of these quiet reporters. So here's what it says, quote, a school teacher turned reporter named Helen Cusack donned a shabby frock and brown veil and went looking for a job in the rainy July of 1888. In factories and sweatshops, she stitched coats and shoe linings, interviewed her fellow workers in hot, unventilated spaces, and did the math. At the Excelsior Underwear Company, she was handed a stack of shirts to sew, 80 cents a dozen and then was charged 50 cents to rent the sewing machine and 35 cents for thread. Nearby, another woman was being yelled at for leaving oil stains on chemises. She'd have to pay to launder them. 
But worse than broken shoes, ragged clothes, filthy closets, poor light, high temperature, and vitiated atmosphere was the cruel treatment of the people in a, by the people in authority. She wrote under the byline Nell Nelson, and her series was called City Slave Girls and ran for weeks. Wow. So I guess there were women all over Chicago, New York, all the big cities uncovering these yeah, things. doing this undercover work. You know, if you wow. think about women in the 19th century, this is this is huge. This yeah. is not what women did. No. Nope. Um, and there's our bell. <laughs> Each of our three topics this week could make a whole episode and more. I'm hopeful that I've touched on some interesting aspects that make people curious and interested in exploring further. So I don't know if you can hear, but we're having announcements going off because it's the end of the school yeah. day. So if you do hear that, as we said, we always have a little atmosphere in our podcast. <laughs> so those are the three themes. But in celebration of Hanukkah, we just put up our Hanukkah display for the library. Aww. I said that I would end by... Uh, talking about the holiday just briefly because most people uh, don't know about it. Um, I'll try to be brief. So according to legend and some biblical references, Hanukkah commemorates the victory of the Jewish sect, sect, the Maccabees, over Greek oppressors and the rededication of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem during the second century BCE. This minor celebration on the Jewish calendar has been blown up in American society because of Christmas. Hanukkah is also known as the Festival of Lights. Jewish people celebrate the holiday by lighting a menorah with eight candles and a ninth that makes what's called the shamash that is used for lighting the rest. According to the Maccabean story, the rededicated temple had only enough oil to burn for a day, but in a miracle, it burned for eight instead. Therefore, the eight symbolic candles. American Jewish children get a present on each of the eight days, and usually they're small gifts. We eat potato pancakes called lakis and play a game called dreidel that involves a small top and chocolates. And that's pretty much all there is to it. (laughs) (laughs) Hanukkah begins on the evening of November 28th this year. And just as an aside, the most important holidays to Jews are called the High Holy Days, and they take place in September, in case you were wondering. So this is little for us, but it's probably the holiday that people know, if they know any of them. yeah. Yeah. So that is awesome. Some information as usual, Melissa. And honestly, there is never an easy way to wrap up because I always feel like I want to hear more. Um, but we probably do need to let you go about your day and, and do other things. And all good things must come to an end. So we're nearing the end of our podcast today. So remember, the Curious Reader podcast can be found on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and even for free on audible.com. If you've missed an episode, now is a great time to go back and catch up. And don't forget, liking and subscribing helps others discover this podcast. So please click that little heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading and discovering something new. So be sure to catch us next month, though, when Melissa and I discuss Donuts and Other Proclamations of Love by Jared Reck. I love donuts, (laughs) and I love that title. Okay, um, wait, before you continue, so... Jelly donuts are a big part of Hanukkah. That's a huge oh, food, which mm. I didn't. So there you go. Jelly, oh, and I do love jelly donuts too. And it's, I, we keep saying we don't really like romance, but here we go with another contemporary romance. But I'm going to tell you, it's the food truck that sold me on this, and and and, and donuts. But um, so so next month we'll explore how high school senior Oscar has his future all planned out with high hopes to operate his family's Swedish food truck business and maybe someday a cafe of his own. But the future is anything but certain in this alternately funny and heartbreaking contemporary story about food trucks, festivals, 
and first loves. So thank you for listening. And remember, the curious reader seeks understanding beyond the book.